Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 33. The great Old Testament promise to the people of God. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. And then we're turning to Matthew chapter 5, um, starting at verse 17. This is following on from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount we've been reading for the last couple of weeks. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said that it was, sorry, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So here in these words, Jesus is teaching us that if we're going to live well as his followers, as his disciples, we need to learn from the law of God, the law that he gave to his people in the Old Testament through Moses, uh, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, that came to a shock, as a shock to a lot of people at the time uh, who thought that in many ways Jesus was saying that it was time to sweep away that old law. It's a shock to many people now, too, who um, think, well, it's e so easy to, to misread Jesus because he talks about grace and forgiveness and love in such a way that we, it's easy to think that he means that that law is finished and done with entirely, that that was an old way to God, but now we have a completely separate way to God, which, and so we don't, don't need the law in any way. And Jesus is going to teach us that if we think like that, then it's because of a misunderstanding, fundamentally, of what the law itself is about. 
After all, it is the law itself that says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. It is a law of love and for love. It can be restrictive and unpleasant, but that is when it is misunderstood and misapplied. When we treat it as if the rules are the main point. That these rules given by God are not for the, their own sake. They are rules that exist for the sake of relationships. They're a playbook, sort of fundamental rules for healthy relationship with God and with one another. If we think life is all about the rules, it goes horribly, horribly wrong. But if we abandon the rules, the same happens. It's like, a, I can't believe I'm using two football illustrations in one day, someone who is as unfamiliar with football as myself. But you try playing a game of football, um, if people are mainly interested in the rules and exactly how to apply the offside rule, but can't kick a ball, it doesn't go so well. But it goes equally badly if no one has a clue of the rules at all. They're there to provide assistance to make the game worth playing. In the same way, God's law was there to, find, to show us how relationships are to work. Relationships with God and with one another. Now, in the, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes. We've seen how the blessed life, the good life, starts with a recognition of our need for grace. God's forgiveness. God's mercy. But then that leads to lives shaped by grace. Lives that in turn pass that forgiving, merciful graciousness onto others. And finally, to showing grace, to living as the light of the world and the salt of the earth so that people see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Here Jesus is going on to, to tell us what sort of life it is that is that kind of life of good deeds, how it is that we do live in that way. At the beginning of, of that section, um, 17 to 20, he tells us what he's going to tell sort of a little introduction that Jesus gives to what he's going to say about God's law and how it helps us to live in that way. He's going to tell us that the law is good and important, but he's calling us to a deeper goodness than the most committed rel religious leaders of his day. He then follows with six examples, um, six examples uh, of different areas where that law applies in our lives today. So today we're looking at firstly that little introduction, 17 to 20, and then the first of his examples, the application to anger. So Jesus began by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. As we said, Jesus' teaching about mercy and forgiveness is so shockingly radical that a lot of people at the time thought he was just chucking away all the rules and laws that God had given his people. And for the people of the site, that time especially, they lived in a really religious society. Morality was taught by reading God's law in the Old Testament. And the way Jesus treated those laws just seemed to them to indicate that he was getting rid of them. For some of them, because... So often those laws were taught as, do this and that and the next thing. That is how you get to God. That is how you have a relationship with God. Keep this rule, that rule, and the next rule, and you're done. And Jesus comes and he chucks out lots of the stuff that people have been taught. All the little additions that have been made to, to the rules. And people think, oh, he's relaxing the rules. 
But he wasn't relaxing them. He's bringing them back to the fundamentals, the things themselves. People were saying he'd come to throw the law out. And he says, no, 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 no. I've come for quite the opposite reason. Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he would do that in several different ways. The law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, in other words, always looked forward to him. Again and again it foretells his coming and it points to the need for him. In that way, he would fulfill the law. On top of that, he himself would obey God's law in a perfect way that no one else has ever managed. He would live the perfect life we cannot live in our place. And so in that way, again, he fulfills the law. And, but thirdly, he fulfilled it in a different way by calling us, his disciples, to a deeper, a fuller obedience to that law than anyone could manage before. He would say, he, not the, the little, littlest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not the crossing of an eye or the dotting of a T is going to be swept out of God's law until everything is accomplished, until, in other words, God's plan to sweep away all evil, to remake heaven and earth and put all things right is complete. That means that the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers does not give us the excuse that it doesn't matter how we live. We don't get to heaven by obeying God's laws, but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't matter in any way what we do. And so Jesus says each disciple's place of honor there in the kingdom is going to be measured by how well they live out God's standards. Um, if they disobey them, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If they practice them and teach them, they'll be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Um, now, before we continue, probably worth saying briefly, um, when we read the laws in the Old Testament, there are lots of laws that don't directly apply to us. We don't live in ancient Israel, and so the, the law codes about uh, what happens in different criminal cases don't seem to directly apply to us. And Jesus would also make clear things like the food laws don't apply directly to us. And indeed, the, the law itself um, divides itself into different sections. Um, the legal side for running a country, which was explicitly written for the ancient country of Israel. And then the worship side, the, the, the law, the ceremonial law for worshiping God. And each of those, while they don't, we don't apply them in the same way, Jesus will make it clear in other places that through them we still learn about justice. We still learn about worship. They, they, those two are still important parts of the law. And finally, of course, there was the moral law. The Ten Commandments are the obvious example, but there's much else in the law. The law for behavior, which has never changed because the nature of goodness itself never changes. I think perhaps an example, um, some people cook mainly by using recipes. Other people cook either by instinct or just a deep understanding of how cookery works. You know, you can cook pretty well if you follow a good recipe book. You can make good food. But if you don't understand how food works, what it's supposed to be like, or how cookery works, you are at some point going to run into trouble. I remember uh, staying away one time as a teenager for Christmas. And we had good food each night, lovely cakes. The person cooking was amazing. Except Christmas dinner. 
Because this person who was cooking was a vegetarian. They'd never eaten turkey before. So they followed the recipe, which often would have been fine. But unfortunately, that oven wasn't very powerful. And unfortunately, they didn't know that turkey isn't supposed to be pink. Following the recipe is not enough. The, the teachers of the law in Jesus' time were, had a tendency to follow the recipe to the letter as if that was the whole thing. But God's law is designed to teach us more than that. There are things like the law codes for ancient Israel that are like recipe. This is how it works in this particular situation. Or this is how in ancient Israel you're going to worship God. But those little recipes are part of a bigger system of teaching us how to cook, as it were. My brother's a chef. He uses recipe books, but he uses them. He just flicks through them for ideas. You know, oh, if I put that and that together, that sounds good. But the reason he can do that is that he knows the fundamental rules of cooking. The, the deeper law, the, the law, the fundamental, like the fundamental parts of the law of God. For, for cooking, that's things like what flavors go together? How hot does this need to be to brown something? How warm does this need for the dough to rise? All these little things that perhaps you do by instinct if you're a good cook, but which just a list of items in a recipe book will never be enough to teach. God's law is like that. It contains that, those deep rules, those deep understandings of how to live, how to have relationships with God and with one another. And then it does give lots of applications, little recipes for particular situations. And none of it, though, is swept away because all of it teaches us how to live. And that's what leads Jesus on to his great, really challenging paragraph. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the strictest people of the time. They kept the law in incredible detail. You know, God's law said you have to give a tenth of everything you own, so they go around their herb gardens making sure they've got exactly a tenth of all their mint and dill and chives and everything. They're not missing a single letter or a single line in the recipe, as it were. And some of them were obvious hypocrites, but many of them were not. And so when the disciples heard this, they would have been deeply, deeply shocked. We're so used to the Pharisees being the bad guy, we don't get the shock of that. But he's saying, the best people you know, the most strict and obedient lives, aren't doing well enough. You need to do better. And if you don't, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That seems very strange after what he said in the Beatitudes. He said that those who have the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit. Those who know their need for mercy. They know their need for God's forgiveness and help. And yet here he's saying that there's still a high standard of righteousness. What, what, what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean we have to obey more rules. He means we have to get this more on a, on, on a deeper level instead. He's saying you need to start keeping these from the heart. Understanding the point and the purpose of God's rules. Not that by obeying them you will get to heaven that's going to be very clear that we can't do that as Jesus teaches through these different laws. If, if that was the way, then we'd all be stuck. But a sign of the heart that really has come to God is a willingness to obey these laws and rules from the heart, to understand and see their deep point and purpose. The law was always for that reason. That's why the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had gone wrong. They thought, do this, do that, do the next thing. You're right with God. It doesn't matter how you are deep inside. 
But God's law always had the purpose, yes, of teaching us how to live, but also of teaching us what true goodness is like. So that when we see it, we realize, firstly, this is what I want to aim for. But also, and this is vital, also realizing I don't measure up. I need to go back to the start of the Beatitudes. I need, I, I'm poor in spirit. I don't measure up and I need mercy. I need forgiveness. Jesus makes that clear. Now, we, we carry on to the second part. The, Jesus is an example. And I think a lot of what we just said will become clear. He's going to talk about anger. In fact, he's going to talk about murder. Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That seems a very good place to start. You know, probably most of us, if we read the Ten Commandments, this is the one that we're really confident we're doing quite well on. You know, I I know one or two people who have killed someone, and they've done their time, and they've come out, but not too many of us have done any particular murdering lately, I hope. If you have, please, <laughs> please talk to me and the police. <laughs> but Jesus is going to show that just to skim over it like that is, is not understanding what it's like. You know when you have two kids squabbling and you say, don't hit your sister. Everything goes quiet for a minute. And then you hear screaming. You say, I, I told you not to hit your sister. I didn't didn't hit my sister. I just pushed her gently and she fell over. Or maybe I bit her. You know, know, that that creative way children have of just finding a slightly different thing that they can do to get to the main thing. Of course, as adults, we're even better at that. You know, that's why we need lawyers to write long, long, long contracts with all the different things to loopholes closed up just in case we try and wriggle out of it. Uh, we've learned also as adults generally that um, thumping people uh, or murdering people is actually not always the best way to get what you want. There are much more subtle ways, aren't there? Now, some of them are you know, basically using your words is quite powerful. Look, the person who said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, was lying because someone was using words to hurt them and they wanted them to stop. Words hurt. They really hurt, don't they? When, notice when Jesus teaches here, he doesn't say it is written in the law. That's what Jesus always says when he quotes the law. He says, it is written. Here he says, you have heard that it was said. In other words, this is the teaching you hear from the scribes and the Pharisees. They say to you, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. In other words, don't murder. Judgment is for murderers. The rest of you can get off scot-free. And he's saying, no. God tells us not to murder. But when he tells us that, it's like a parent saying to the child in the back of the car, don't hit your sister. He's saying, I'm telling you not to harm other people. Um, Being angry with your brother is enough to make you subject to judgment. It's quite scary, isn't it? But it's the reality. Because, of course, murder comes from anger. You look back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and the very first murder is so clearly just comes from anger. And that's, that's where murder comes from. So if you don't want the end product, don't start 
Don't start with anger. Don't start with cruelty and insults. And he says, you know, in our time, if anyone who says racha, that probably means something like bonehead or nitwit or empty head, except it's obviously a little bit ruder, um, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Probably in context, that just means the Sanhedrin is, is council, so it probably means vi local village council. If you go around calling people rude names, you're going to get hauled up in front of them. Um, bit like libel nowadays. But he says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The anger and the cruelty that comes out when we call people nasty names or just anything hurtful or cruel is exactly the same evil that leads to murder. And when Jesus, when, when God forbade murder, he was forbidding them too. And so Jesus is saying, it's not enough that you don't kill people. You need to have changed hearts and you need to root the anger and the cruelty out of your heart, right out of who you are. So the righteousness you have isn't just a simple keeping the rules. It is something that goes right down to the core of who you are. That is how to obey that ancient command not to murder. This has been a hard sermon to prepare because, you know, anyone who reads this and doesn't realize that they're not doing a great job of it so far hasn't read it, have they? I look at that and think, I get angry. Often. Does anyone else not occasionally get angry, whether it's with other drivers or kids or people in your family? Anger is, is with some of us constantly. And Jesus is saying, we've got to root it out. And he gives us instructions on how to live in accordance with this. He, wants, he gives us instructions on, essentially, examples of rooting it right out of your life. Um, very similar. I was doing a food hygiene course this week. It was about as exciting as it sounds. Um, it talked about how to get rid of rats and mice and pests and cockroaches, among many other things. And of course, the main lesson, as always, is not which poison to use or which mousetrap to use. The main lesson is don't leave crumbs on the surface so that they come in the first place. Jesus is saying the same with anger. He's saying, don't set up your life so that you've got occasions for anger all the time. Now, that's what he's doing here. Um, if you're offering your gift in the temple, and you remember your brother has something against you. Leave the gift, drop everything, go and be reconciled. In other words, you're worshipping. So you're in church today, you're singing, you're in the middle of singing, or you're waiting for the person to actually sort out the PowerPoint so the singing works. And suddenly you remember that you said something you shouldn't, and someone is upset about it. Jesus says, drop everything and go. Now, obviously, if you do that after I've said that today, that's going to feel a little embarrassing. But imagine how much peace and kindness there would be if we took sorting out relationships in our lives seriously enough that we would genuinely drop everything in the middle of a church service and go and see that brother or sister or friend who we've offended. Imagine how much less in the way of cruel words and anger we would have from ourselves, but also how much less we would encourage others to it. In the same way, Jesus gives another example about someone who's 
maybe got an unpaid debt. You know, don't, don't wait till you're in court to sort it out. That just leads to anguish and pain and, and anger and misery. Sort it out now. And obviously that's good advice, uh, sort of financially or legally. Get things sorted out at the beginning before they get worse. But under the surface, I think there's also a reminder that we're dealing with God here all the time. Because if we've read the, the first part about anger, we'll be very aware we're in debt to God. We've not lived up to his standards. And he's saying, don't, don't sit there thinking, you know, one day I'll sort out all these debts. One day I'll say sorry and I'll sort out my life and start to live the way I should. Um, one day I'll set things straight. He's saying, if you go that way, you, you end up in worse mess. Potentially. Maybe thrown into prison, not get out till you've paid the last penny. You, you'll be dealing with God's judgment forever. Come to him now, in other words. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Come to terms. Come to him and acknowledge you can't pay the debt that you owe. There's no way you can live up to these standards which Jesus is teaching, either now or in the future or in the past, that you need forgiveness for the past, you need forgiveness for the future as well, and you need help to do a better job of living up further to these, these wonderful but difficult ways. In other words, back to the Beatitudes. Come to him, poor in spirit, mourning for what we've been, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to be something better and different. And when we do, he will forgive us. He will give us the kingdom. He will comfort us. He will fill us with righteousness, just like the Beatitudes promised. We need to understand that our debt is deep, but his mercy is also deep. And he sets out this law before us for two reasons. To direct us first to mercy. So we'll, we'll read it. We'll, we'll see, I don't measure up to this. There's anger in my life all the time. There's things I say that I wish I hadn't said. There's things I say that I'm glad I said and I should regret saying them. And I need mercy. I need to come to God for mercy. And at the same time, there is a call because there is a possibility with God's help of a deeper and more faithful life. Remember that promise from the Old Testament we read before the, from the book of Jeremiah. I will place my law in their hearts. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God takes the law from being just words on a page that accuse us to something in our heart that begins to deeply and profoundly change the way we live. Not to perfection, but with his help and with prayer. It really does alter how we live. If we are willing to take it seriously in this way, if we're willing to take big steps to deal with the anger and the wrong and the other sins in our lives. So in conclusion, you know, Jesus is saying, God's law still stands. And it's a good law. A good law. It's a good guide for us. It will help us to understand how to live well in relationships to others and to God. It gives us a new standard to aim for, a new goal and a guide. But it also directs us to mercy. It's a bittersweet section of the Bible, isn't it? You know, in some ways it's very sweet. You, you go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and it paints a picture of a life so good, so beautiful, that it fills you with a longing to see it and to live up to it. And when we look at Jesus' life, of course, it is a, a living out of exactly that standard. And it is beautiful. So there is something sweet about this. And yet it's better at the same time. You know, we come to this and we think, my goodness, I don't measure up. 
I'm so far from what I ought to be. And as I said, preparing this, that's exactly what I thought I've been thinking. But he's calling us back to his mercy. He's calling us back to real mercy and forgiveness and hope as well as a new direction for our lives.